good morning. Let me just put this here. So um, over the last few weeks, Pastor Matt has started a sermon series um, titled, I Will Build My Church, in which we're looking through the book of Acts to see um, what does the book of Acts say about what is the church, what is the mission of the church, how do we relate to another, what is the church, and um, what should we do next? And it's kind of an amazing thing. Sorry, I'm going to get the right spot. It's kind of an amazing thing. By the way, you can turn to Acts chapter 3. It's an amazing thing that we have this book written 2,000 years ago and older that instructs us today, but it's not really amazing when we understand that this is God's word written to his church across time. It's the word of God, and as Hebrew says, it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the, to, uh, the, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it's really, it's not literally the word itself, but it's the Holy Spirit who, who works amazingly through the word to enliven our hearts, to open our eyes, to unstop our ears. And there's something about the way that God does things that uses his word through his spirit to make real, um, a real difference. When you think, um, like, what's the most important thing about sharing Christ with someone? Or if you ask, like, the man on the street, um, what would God need to do to cause you to believe in him? Like, what would, what would, what would you imagine would some of the uh, responses be? It could be like, well, he should show me a sign, make me know that he's really there, you know, like uh, a sign in the sky or, like, all green lights on Arneal at 5 o'clock, you know, when I'm trying to get somewhere, something like that, and then I'll believe in him. Or some people might say, like, just, just give me a clear cogent, logical, wise argument that just, just proves it to me. And that's not quite God's way, is it? I mean, think about your, your own selves and your own history. How has God opened your eyes to the truth of who he is? 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 21 to 23 says, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So God, through his word, through his spirit, um, is how he brings people to life and grows us, matures us, and conforms us to the image of Christ. So as we consider the Lord's will for the church, um, and it's, appropriate we hear, it's appropriate that we hear it from this word, and in Acts, he demonstrates this through his apostles. So what we've seen so far in the book of Acts that Matt has taught us has been um, the Holy Spirit has been given to the church. As the Holy Spirit has been given by the Lord to his church to empower us, to equip us, to enable us to do his will, he forms and shapes our hearts, he turns our affections to the Lord, um, he gives us gifts that we use to glorify him and to, um, and to serve one another. And then last week we saw the priorities of the church, which include teaching, um, the unity of the church, the community of the church, um, and prayer. And again, his point last week is similar to the amazingness that what the Word of God can do by being faithful in these simple things that don't really seem like they amount to much, they're not flashy, God does extraordinary things. And so this morning we're going to look at Acts chapters 3 and 4, so covering a lot of ground and not every single verse, but looking at Acts chapters 3 and 4 to look more closely into one aspect of this faithfulness, and we're going to talk about boldness, the boldness of the church. And so I'm going to start by reading Acts. Um, I'm going to read verses four, or chapter 4, verses 5 through 13. And then we're going to go back to um, Acts 3. So if you want to follow with me, starting chapter 4, verse 5, it says this. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem 
with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, this is Peter and John, and perhaps their friend that they healed, when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people, sorry if my spot, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So let's pray. Father, as we look at your word and depend on your spirit to teach us, would you do something amazing today? Would you turn hearts towards you? Would you enliven and um, turn our hearts toward Jesus so that we would be trusting, so that we'd be faithful, so that our lives would reflect um, reflect this new place that you have put us into, this, um, this relationship with you that we have been reconciled with you, that we are, um, we are forgiven. We stand free before you to live out your mission. So Father, open our eyes, unstop our ears, enliven our hearts so that we'd hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I were to say to you, um, think in your mind, picture someone who speaks with boldness. What do you picture? Like, what does it mean to speak with boldness. In the Bible, boldness is a good quality, right? So sometimes we might think of like brashness or like, oh, it's that guy, here he goes again. But in the Bible, boldness is looked on as a positive quality. It's a good thing. It's a quality of uh, courageousness and clear clarity of speaking, courageousness, fearlessness. And it's really what it is, is clearly speaking what God has made plain to us, speaking what is truth confidently, clearly, even with good cheer. And let me just give you a couple of examples of a few scriptures that might sound familiar. The first is Philippians 1.14, um, which Charlie read as part of his uh, opening. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In this case, Paul had spoken boldly. It got him into trouble, into jail. But the effect of that was that everybody else started speaking up boldly. It's a confidence in God's power. 1 Thessalonians 2.2 says this, but though we had, this is Paul again, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. See, Paul confirms he spoke plainly. He wasn't being sneaky. He wasn't being furtive. He just spoke plainly, and it, it did cause trouble, but he contrasted it with words of flattery or a pretext for greed or anything like that. Plain speaking boldness. It's free from calculation. It does make me think of, you know, the, uh, the uh, Pharisees and the scribes. They asked Jesus, you know, where does the uh, authority of John come from, right? Because they're, and then Jesus says, oh yeah, well, you know, or actually, well, where does your authority come from? Where does, Jesus responds, where does the authority of John come from? And they're like, well, if I say this, they'll say this. If you say this, I'll say that. They didn't know what to say. They wouldn't speak boldly. They were calculating. They were political. And what we're talking about here with boldness is plain speaking without that calculation. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, Paul again says, pray also for me that words may be given to me 
in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul asks that the church pray and continue, that he would continue to speak boldly. So you can see what all these things have in common. They have to do with help me to speak boldly. Help me to speak clearly because it's not always easy, right? It's not always um, culturally acceptable, but it's the most needful thing. Spiritual boldness is speaking the true words of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, and accomplishing the mission of God. So today we're going to look at some examples of bold speaking and see how it applies to us today. So going back to Acts chapter 3, here we go, two chapters, 30 minutes. So Acts chapter 3, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, at the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate at the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and no gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong and leaping up. <laughs> He stood and began to walk, entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So Peter and John go up to the temple, and it, the way that it's written makes it sound like this was their custom, right? These are maybe two months after Jesus Christ died and rose again. And they're going, into the, they're going into the temple, as is their custom. This is the time of the afternoon sacrifice and prayer, and they presumably probably didn't really go there to participate in the sacrifice, knowing by now that Jesus Christ was that perfect sacrifice that these pointed to. But they still kind of went up there. This is also in the tradition of Jesus, right? Jesus himself went to the temple, and he taught the people. So presumably, Peter and John would go up together two by two, like you know, the Lord taught them to do, and they were probably up there. There's a crowd, a great place to go, talk to people who have religious, you know, motivations. Um, and so they're up there doing that day by day. Incidentally, the last verse of chapter 2 says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Maybe this is one of the ways that they did it. So they came up, they saw the man that was there, they looked at him intently, and not sure how, right? Later it does say that it was through this man's faith in Christ that he was healed, but, but he looked at him, John was with this whole time. I'm going to say Peter, 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 but John is with him the entire time, supporting him. But they look at him, fix their gaze on him, and just raise him up. He is immediately healed, and everybody is astonished. And as we look through this, I won't point it out each time, but read these chapters. This man who is healed is just leaping for joy. It says literally leaping. And it's almost like he's like a little puppy dog that keeps kind of hopping around Peter and John, right? Because you just watch. It says he clung to them. He was around them. He was rejoicing with them, right? So it's spectacular. This man himself is spectacularly healed. The people around the temple saw this, and it says they were utterly amazed. And so in verse 11, it says, um, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them to, into the portico called Solomon's. So a crowd is gathered to Peter. What's Peter going to do with this opportunity? When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. 
So Peter, Peter starts um, by saying, don't look at me, right? Do you think I did this? And it would be a natural, I mean, really put yourself in the place of the people. You're at the temple of God. Amazing things have been happening, you know, not just in the last couple of months, but really over a couple of years with Jesus. I mean, even though Jesus hasn't really been present there, uh, things are happening. This man is now healed. I mean, your reaction would be like, look at this guy. Look at these guys. It's amazing. And Peter says, don't look at me. It's not my power. And he says, don't look at me. It's not like I'm a particularly holy man of God that can sort of channel God's power. But he's eager to be more clear, more precise, and describe by whose power this man was healed. It says, it's by the power of God, the God of the fathers, um, who has glorified his servant, Jesus. And that's a, that's a remarkable thing. When we read through this, yeah, his servant Jesus, we know, you know, Jesus is his servant. But this really meant something to these devout Jewish people going up to sacrifice. When you hear God's servant Jesus, they would hear Isaiah, who in many different parts would talk about, my servant is this, my servant is that. And specifically, here's a couple of examples that might come to mind. Isaiah 42.1, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. Right? Jesus is God's servant in whom God delights. Isaiah 49, 6, is it too small of a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back um, those of Israel I have kept? I will make you also a light of the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Right? God says, my servant, he's not just going to save these people in this couple hundred square miles. My math probably isn't very good. He's going to save the entire world. Isaiah 52, 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So when the people that Peter's speaking to um, hear this, their minds are going to go back to God's servant. Are we talking about the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for? In verse, verse 14, he goes on, but you, he, so Peter talking to this crowd, but you, Denied the holy and righteous one, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And he concludes with, in his name, by faith in his name, he made this man strong, who you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Right? So this is amazing. I mean, consider the boldness that he gets up there and he says. So first of all, he does the miracle. Like, they're where God wants them to be. Here's there. They see the man. They know he's the guy. They do. He does... Um, the Lord does a miracle through Peter, and once the crowd comes, he speaks plainly. Now, clearly, this is like a condensed version of his. He didn't preach for like 30 seconds, right? But this is a condensed version of what he said. He could have said, but think about it like this. I mean, the, think of the clarity with which he spoke, and think of how we sometimes, I'll, I won't accuse you yet, right? But me, you know, I am sometimes a coward, right? It's easy. It would be easy to say, like, look, God really blessed this guy, didn't he? Or or look what, look, what God, look what God did. God restored his health. It's kind of easy sometimes to talk about God in a, just in, well, in a group of people, in any group of people, in a mixed religious group of people. It's easy to say, yeah, God's great. God's good. It's a little bit harder to say Jesus Christ, isn't it? Right? And that's, I mean, so that would be, that's a point of boldness. That's a point of clarity. That's a point of conviction, right? It's one thing to say to say, God, this, God, that. But when we say, it's in the name of Jesus Christ, this man has been healed, there is, there is no doubt who you're talking about. I remember shortly after I went to, uh, after I was saved, I was 23, um, and I went to a wedding. I went to a, it might be the first, like, Christian wedding I went to. Maybe not. Maybe I just didn't get it before. But I kept hearing the Lord this and the Lord that, and my heart was, like, alive because it was the first time I'd been to, like, a 
like a church, I mean, we have a kind of a traditional looking church, and a lot of times you just hear, you know, God this, God that, and there's something that's just not there behind it. But when I heard like people talking about the Lord has blessed me in this way, and they're talking about Jesus, right? It, it woke my heart up in a certain way that, I mean, it was all part of that first month I was kind of a believer, right? But it stuck that the name of the Lord is, is a precious thing, and it's, it's something that we need, to, um, we need to have his name on our lips. He could have even just said, in the name of Jesus Christ, this man's been restored, which is gloriously true. I mean, that would be awesome, right? In the name of Jesus Christ, he has been restored, which is, which is great. But he went on. He said, Jesus, he is the glorified servant of God. He's the Messiah we've been waiting for. Jesus, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, right? No confusion. I mean, he is elevating Jesus from like, remember the nice teacher, right? He's not just saying, remember the nice teacher. He's saying, remember, this is the one who God has sent. In fact, this is the son of God himself. These are titles reserved for God. Jesus, whom the God of our fathers raised from the dead. Amazing. Jesus, whom you delivered over, whom you denied, whom you killed. That's bold, right? And again, he's, this is not just boldness for the sake of being provocative, right? He's being very clear. This is like conviction of sin at this point. He's not just saying, hey, look at what happened. He's saying, um, consider your lives. Consider where you stand. Consider that God sent his Messiah, the author of life. You denied him. You handed him over. You killed him. He has been exalted to the right hand of God. What do you think he thinks of you now? And similarly, he said the same thing in Acts 2, and they were cut to the heart. And in this case, it doesn't quite use that language, but he's boldly speaking. He knew the scriptures, what was true, right? In fact, he knew from his upbringing, he knew from Jesus teaching him, he knew from the Holy Spirit enlivening him. And he also knew from his own experience, he says, to these things, we are all witnesses. So he knew these things. And so he was able to speak, not just what the truth is, but he was able to speak to the people's predicament, their sin, and their hopelessness. And so again, he could see, he's reading the crowd, right? And he could see there is this cut to the heart because the next part, he says, now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, right? He's letting up a little bit. Is it also your rulers? But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that, this, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing might come in the presence of the Lord. So this is, his, this is his call. This is really the gospel call, right? To, to people that were hopeless, there is hope, right? If you're on the receiving end of this bold preaching, you might realize if your heart was sensitive that you are hopeless. There's nothing you can do. You've already done it. You've kind of, kind of made your own sentence. You've made your own bed, right? Um, but the amazing thing about this gospel call, so Dennis Johnson, who I read, wrote this, the healing, the healing of this man might be thought of as both an x-ray and as a preview, as an x-ray, it makes visible to outside observers the unseen inner cure that faith in Jesus produces, right? So when this man was healed, it wasn't just a nice thing done for a man, and it wasn't just like a trick to call a crowd, right? The Lord is providing sort of a physical picture of, of healing, restoration from a hopeless situation. Back to the quote. I should stay in the quote. Astonishing, um, astonishing it is, as it is for a man of 40 who has never walked to leap in the temple— the cure of hearts paralyzed in sin is even greater. As a preview, it shows the final completion of Jesus' restorative work when believers' physical bodies will fully experience the salvation which we already taste in the form of the first fruits. Astonishing as it is for a lame man to leap, it's nothing when compared to the cosmic restoration to come, the restoration of all things. But anyway, this man has been healed. Peter is saying, repent. He is giving them the way out. He is offering them 
Jesus Christ. Repent, turn back that your sins might be blotted out and you might get refreshment, right? This is what they need. This is their predicament. They need one thing at this point. They need to be forgiven of this travesty of justice that they participated in and, you know, and their sin in general. But we have here the kindness of God that's coming to them, right? All of a sudden, it's not, it's not really so much a finger wagging. At the beginning, he kind of got the attention of their hearts. But now the kindness of God has come to them, and he says, repent, turn. And it's not repent and turn and like shape, shape up. It's repent, turn back, so that the restoration offered in the Lord might come. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And so this was offered to the people in the temple, and this is exactly the same good news that's offered to us today. Again, it's an amazing thing that something 2,000 years old still speaks. Again, not so amazing when we realize it's God himself and the Holy Spirit who, who teaches us. But um, this is the same gospel that's offered up today. In verse 22, later on, if we read through the whole thing, Peter goes on to say, Moses said, talking about something in the Bible, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and do whatever he tells you, and it should be that every soul who does not listen will be destroyed from his people. God has brought well, all of us here together, if you are someone who does not yet know Christ, or if you're outside of Christ, or you haven't come to that point where you realize your sin, and you, 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 maybe you realize the predicament. I mean, the same problem that these people had at that time is the same problem that we have today. And what the scripture urges, and what I urge and beg you, is that you would recognize this predicament, and that you would repent. It says right here, repent, turn back, turn away from the sin, treasure Jesus Christ, trust in him as the only way. Um, for those of you that, that have come to faith, which would be a lot of us here in church, um, just I want you to recall, how is it that you know this truth? And not just know it in your head, how is it that, that your heart says, yes, give it to me again, right? At least mine does, right? And the reason why is because you heard the word. I want, what I'm trying to get across is that one of the reasons why we can be bold, as Peter was bold, is that we know that this is true. We know that God delights to work in this way by just talking. It could be parents talking to your children. It could be a friend talking to another friend. It's not just someone standing up, you know, preaching. But it is just God using words, what Paul called the foolishness of preaching. It sounds silly. Just tell people right? You don't have to be that clever. You don't have to be that cute. You don't have to be that creative. What we do have to be is faithful and trust in the Lord. So, um, this is the witness of Peter and John in a receptive crowd, but we're going to move on to uh, chapter 4, where things get a little bit more hostile. So, in chapter 4, it says, as they were speaking to the people, right? So, the, the afternoon sacrifice is like 3 o'clock. That's when it's, everything started. Maybe they're there for an hour or two or three. It's, I don't know when it gets dark or what they do. But they're sitting there teaching the people. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, which I like that verb, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, right? They thought they had put the Jesus problem behind them, right? And now, here are these yahoos who are in the temple teaching people about Jesus, and they're proclaiming boldly, clearly, confidently that he was raised from the dead to this we are witnesses. So they took them, they arrested them, verse 3, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So that's amazing, right? I mean, so this is the first instance, like in Acts here, where the church is being persecuted, like literally persecuted for, uh, for speaking the name of Jesus. 
But even in the midst of this initial persecution, which is arrest overnight, 5,000 men, besides the women and children, were saved, right? So the church is, you know, exploding. So in the midst of persecution, that even happens. So um, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were all called together in Jerusalem. So the, the high council, the Sanhedrin, is called together. This is the same council that tried Jesus a couple of months earlier, found him guilty, falsely, and executed him. And so now Peter and John, and I think the leaping, the leaping guy is with them as well. If you'll see if you read through, but um, they're, they're before them. Put yourself in that position. You are before the high council, really of all the power in the country, maybe outside the Romans. And they ask him, they put him in their midst. Verse seven, they, they had set them in their midst and they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? I'm not quite sure what kind of ant what they're trying to accomplish with this, right? But this is exactly a question that Peter is very happy to answer. By what power did you do this? And so as we go into this, of course, just note the difference in demeanor of Peter from a few months earlier, from all the disciples a few months earlier. Um, there is a big difference. What's the difference between now and two months before? The Holy Spirit has been given to them, given them this spirit of boldness. Um, it wasn't a pep talk. It wasn't, they didn't get, a, get kind of in a room together ahead of time, say, all right, guys, if we get in trouble, we're going to stick together, right? It's none of that. There's no calculation. The Holy Spirit is empowering them to do the mission of Jesus Christ, which is to go and make disciples. They have been faithful, and now they're walking the path that the Lord is leading them down. So, I mean, it's one, spe- it's one thing to speak boldly to people who are listening and receptive. Now they faced this interrogation. So how does he respond? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people in Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So again, they're arrested for being bold and greatly annoying the people by, you know, talking about Jesus again, and they bring him up. When they were asked the question, they didn't talk about the name of Jesus. They probably didn't want to say the name, right? But Peter just gets right onto it, and he gives the same message. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you crucified, God raised from the dead, the same message that was given, like, out in the temple. Um, he speaks with respect, you know, rulers, people of, uh, rulers and, um, and elders. He speaks positively, really not defensively. He's like, you know, guys, let me, you got us all wrong, or anything like that. But he speaks as the one who is in control, boldly. And he says, um, well, up to this point, it's pretty much the same message as before. And at this point in the message also, when he was, when he was speaking out into the temple, right, he kind of detected they're receiving this. They're ready for the call to repentance. But this crew isn't yet ready <laughs> for the call to repentance. This is where the big, uh, big difference in the message comes. So Peter goes on in verse 11. Sorry. And he's quoting um, Psalm 118. He says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And so what this is getting at is God is building something. He's building his kingdom, and God builds his kingdom as he sees fit. And he builds his kingdom around faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is that cornerstone, but these builders don't want that kind of cornerstone. This is the same Jesus that came from nowhere in Galilee, He's the one who, um, 
He's the one that was friends, not just with common people, but with, with tax collectors and sinners. He is the one who, um, he disregarded the leader's religious customs, and he even, he even turned the tables on them and said, because of your customs, you guys are showing yourselves to be hypocrites, um, not, um, not following the law of God so that you could follow your own customs. He, um, he, he exposed their own hard-heartedness, their lack of compassion, their hypocrisy. He knew their sin. He exposed their sin. Um, and so he was not really part of their... So well, they hated him, right? They didn't want to build God's kingdom on this cornerstone. These guys wanted to build their religious kingdom on their own terms, how they saw fit. So they, just, they rejected Jesus. They saw that he was killed and put out of their way. The stone that was re rejected by you, Peter says has become the cornerstone. God has exalted him. And so I'm sure at this point, they know these guys have been with Jesus because Jesus kind of made the same point with them. But that's not enough. And he drops a nuclear bomb in verse 12. So in verse 12, he says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, we all see this as a precious verse um, because it, it really talks about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Uh, but I want to read you something out of Isaiah 45 that this is calling on, right? So it is true. Like, when we think of, like, there is, there is salvation in no one else, that really means, like, you know, if you're Muslim and you're following your own tradition, you cannot know the Father. You cannot know God without Jesus Christ, right? If you're a Buddhist or a religious Jew or name any religion or non-religion that's out there, you cannot come to God except through Jesus Christ. That's precious to us. But he's saying more than that, right? These are knowledgeable, scripturally knowledgeable um, Jews. And starting in verse 20, this is a part in Isaiah where, where God is proclaiming that he is Lord. There is no other. In fact, this whole set of chapters is remarkable. But in, starting in verse 20, he says, Assemble yourselves, come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who, care, um, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. He says, all of these other gods that are around, of course they cannot save. I am the true God. But he says, declare and present the case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. No other God beside me, a God and Savior, none beside me. Peter declares, there is no other name by which we must be saved except for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, basically, he is saying this same God that you claim that you worship and you're following after, Yahweh, the Old Testament, this is Jesus. And so he's saying, he's, so when, he, when, he's, when he's trying to kind of st stick the knife in and twist it, this Jesus whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, this Jesus who is the cornerstone, who's the one that God sent to build his kingdom, you have rejected. This Jesus who is the only Lord and Savior, God himself, Yahweh, you are enemies with him. And so even that, apparently, isn't enough to bring to conviction of sin. And so now, when they, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They saw the boldness, the straightforward speech, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. What could they do? They sent, they sent him out. They kind of said, what are we going to do? I mean, this guy is here jumping and leaping around. We can't deny it. And so the best that they could come up with is they commanded them. Let's warn them not to speak in this name anymore. So, verse 18, they, were, they called them, they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Right? Don't do it, guys. And so again, answering with boldness, Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, 
you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Maximum pressure has been exerted up to this point. They fear God. They don't fear men. They fear the risen Christ, not these kind of religious politicians. And they know their mission. They're on task. They know their mission. When they had further threatened them, like I like that too, like what's the response? Well, still, don't do it anymore. When they'd further threatened them, they let them go. They found no way to punish them because of the people. And so this is what happens. They're persecuted, not to the point of like actually receiving stripes, not to the point of death yet, but they were bold. They stood firm. They feared God and not man. So now, thirdly, boldness in prayer. So look at what happens next. Oops, let me go back. So it says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Okay, so they went back and they're all, you know, this is what happened. They explained everything that they saw, that they heard, that they went through. And they lifted their voices together in prayer. They know that they're helpless. They know that they can't withstand, um, you know, the, the pressure of the entire establishment against them. They can't do it, but it is God's mission and they're being faithful. If you're in their position, I mean, we pray. We pray as groups. What do you pray for in a group? If you were faced with this situation, your friends came back and said that they were arrested, and yet they held firm. What would you pray for? I mean, I would be tempted. You know, normally, we tempted is maybe the wrong word, but you know, the first things that I would react to is like, well, certainly, let's pray that um, pray that God's word gets out there. Pray for safety. Pray that um, pray that I don't know. Let's pray that the leaders get converted, so we're not going to be in this kind of trouble anymore. Those sorts of things, which are all you know, good things to pray for. But they lifted their voices together, and what did they pray? Verse 24 says, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth, well, I'll stop with that, the sovereign Lord. So first they pray according to God's character. Before they do anything else, they realize they need God in his sovereignty. They could say, faithful Lord, you kept your promises. You know, they could say, loving God, we know that you love us, right? But in this case, and all of these things are good to appeal to, but in this case, they appeal to the sovereignty of God who is in control of what's going on. That's what they need right now. And I would encourage all of us as we pray, is there something that's really on your heart that you need to pray about? Consider, like, what is it about God that, um, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like we're, like, tugging at his heartstrings, right? But what is it about God that you can appeal to and say, God, we, I know that you're like this. Glorify yourself by helping me where I can't help myself. He goes on to say, verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? He's quoting Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then the psalm goes on from there. But they repeat back the words of God. And so a second thing that we really ought to do in prayer, we can start by appealing to God's character, but also appeal to his word. One of the, one of the um, I meant to bring it up, there's a book in the library which has been super helpful, which is called, um, is it Praying God's Word? <laughs> no, I can't remember, but Donald Whitney. I know we have one in the library. I meant to bring it up here, right? But the idea is like in prayer, if we use his word, you know, we all learn to speak because our moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas kind of talk to us and we, we pick up the language, right? And in the same way, what better way to learn God's, God's language, his vocabulary, his priorities than by praying through this. And what they do is they read this 
and they say, yeah, this is what's going on, God. Just like you said a thousand years ago, the whole world aligns against God. That's what's happening to us. In verse 27, they're praying to God, their experience, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. Right? So they're saying, this is exactly what happened. Just like in David's time, like he was anointed by you and Saul's trying to get him or whoever his enemies were, even now, you've chosen us, you've called us, we're being persecuted. Um, everybody has kind of gathered against Jesus, and in the same way, they're starting to gather against us right now. And they're relying on the promises of God. First, that God is sovereign. Second, he knows what's going on, and this is the way that he is, he is working. And so what are they going to ask for? They still haven't really asked for anything yet. They just recognize that they're right in the heart of God's mission. What do they ask for? I keep losing my place. I don't want to keep you in suspense. Um, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Right? So what do they pray for? They pray for boldness in speech, right? They started off in boldness. The boldness got them in trouble. The boldness also rescued thousands of people, but this boldness got them in trouble, and their prayer is, we want, we're on your mission. This is hard. It's, will I be faithful? You might ask yourself, will I continue to be faithful? It's one thing, you know, it's one thing to be bold once, but the pressure is mounting. Can I continue? God, would you please give me the boldness I need because I am not strong enough in myself. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So God visited them and answered. When you, when you read the place was shaken, you should hear the Holy Spirit was there physically making his presence known. It's kind of like saying, church, we've started. I am with you. Shake. Okay, that's the way he's showing his presence. And it says that they were blessed because... They continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So briefly, um, a few words of application here. So first of all, what do we do with this? Um, we are called to speak God's word boldly, which means plainly and confidently. In fact, one of the things that I got out of this more than anything else in studying is, like, I started looking up what is bold, and the idea of speaking plainly really stuck out to me. I am a people pleaser, right? That is probably my course in. I don't know. It's one of them, right? It's tough for me not to beat around the bush when I got to deliver bad news or things like that. Speaking plainly. Now, it's one thing if I don't really know what I'm talking about, and I'm like, I don't want to be dogmatic when I don't know what I'm talking about. But when we have the Word of God, and the Word of God speaks plainly about so many things, we can just speak the truth. How can we speak boldly? One is by knowing the truth, right? We're talking about specifically about God's word. We know the truth. We know the mission. The mission really is to go and make disciples. It's not just, you know, street preaching, right? It also includes a whole bunch of things. Think of opportunities that you have. When you have the opportunity to pray for someone, do you really pray for them? Like, again, I, this is something I struggle with, right? There's a part of me, like, at least my rationalization is, well, I don't want to look like super, like, holier than thou, right? So I'm going to try to dial back the religious language a little bit. But I think I do that sometimes to the point of being a little bit pathetic. We can boldly pray. We can boldly pray in the presence of God because he's called us to, but we can boldly pray um, plainly. When you're talking with a fellow believer about life, right, we meet in the fellowship hall. Can we talk clearly to one another about how we've been blessed or what we're struggling with? Um, if somebody asks for counsel or advice, can we speak plainly and get to the issue? I mean, there's 
we do things tactfully, but we have to be careful not to just make people feel better. What about confronting someone with their sin, right? In Matthew 18, it says, if someone offends you, go to that person privately, tell them his sin, right? That's something that we're commanded to do. Again, we could be bold in doing that. We don't have to be brash. We don't have to be, you know, arrogant, but we can be confident. We can confidently go to somebody and say, I need to talk to you, have this conversation, because that's what God has instructed us to do. Now, is there risk in doing that? Yeah, there's risk in doing that. They might lash out, and that could be a form of persecution in a sense, but you are on task doing God's, God's work. That's what we're called to do. Of course, an opportunity to share the gospel, right? We have to be sure that if we do share the gospel, you know, we talk about, you know, God's, you know, we deserve punishment. There is one way, and Jesus Christ died for sin. He rose. We trust in Jesus, right? But we can't just say, well, God loves you, and so, like, believe him, right? We, sh- we just have to be a little bit more clear, knowing that God honors that clarity and that boldness. We do have an opportunity even this week with BooFest, whoever's participating in kind of being at the church. I don't know exactly how that is. Part of it's giving out Bibles, but consider as we're doing that, it's very easy to just stand there and just be nice because everybody likes nice people, right? It's, it, but it could really, it could benefit someone's soul, could save someone's soul to have a conversation with Jesus about him or her. Real quickly, the last couple of things. A second point is Plain talk about Jesus can land God's people in persecution. And we know this to be true. And of course, there's different levels. I don't want to downplay things, you know, to talk about persecution, right? There, it goes all the way from death all the way down to, like, offending people that you don't want to offend. And all of that is real, legitimate sacrifice to the Lord for speaking, for speaking boldly. But no, like as we read in Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you. This is a benefit that you have. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, right? Praise God. It's been granted to you that you could believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's part of, it's part of the package. The Lord himself suffered. Yeah, I mean, and, he, and as he said, if the master suffers, you can expect that, or if the, if the teacher suffers, you can expect the disciples will receive that same kind of treatment. So if you believe in him, if you trust him, you should rejoice because it's been granted to you that that's the case. And then it's also the case that we do suffer. And lastly, um, the the third obvious application here is that we must be constant and fervent in prayer. Um, This kind of plain speaking, I don't think comes, it doesn't come naturally to me, and I think culturally it doesn't come naturally to us, and some do it better than others, right? It's something that we need the strength of the Holy Spirit to get us through. So we do need to pray for this. Um, And as you pray, I mean, just consider, pray based on the character of God. Start with your focus on the Lord himself. Whatever you need, there's something about God's character that can provide that for you. Pray based on what Scripture says. This should be an encouragement to, again, read Psalms, read bits of Scripture that you know, even parts that you're familiar with and you know and love, as fodder for helping you to pray like really deep prayers to God. I find that I I literally can't pray much beyond a few feet in front of me unless I have some Scripture in front of me because my mind kind of goes all over the place. Um, And and with that, I, I think I need to wrap it up. But just to say, um, these early, this early episode of Acts 3 and 4, it's a remarkable account of how Peter and John, and I'm sure all the other uh, the, um, apostles, and then the disciples in the church, they went out and they spoke boldly, they spoke plainly. God gave us his word plainly. It's not all super easy to understand, but it, you, if you read a chapter, you can kind of get the gist pretty easily. God speaks plainly to us. He calls us to speak plainly to one another, 
and to people outside the church. And he promises that his spirit will not only give us words to say, but his spirit will do miracles that we don't even know about, right? He is the one who can change hearts. We can't change hearts. So let's be faithful. Um, let's speak boldly and speak plainly. Words are powerful, and God's words used for God's mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can be life-changing. So let me pray. Father, I do pray that, um, that like you are plain, clear, you don't hide yourself, that we would have that, we would have confidence that we would be plain and clear in our own speech. Father, I guess we need to be clear in our own minds about who you are and the great gifts and benefits that we have in Jesus Christ. So I pray that we would, our hearts would just be hungry and thirsty to know all of that better. But even more so, Father, help us to um, not just know intellectually, but, but faithfully be able to speak, knowing that if, if, if our words are offensive, it's not, it's not us that they're offended by. It's you, it's your word, it's, it's an offense. Um, but we also know that it is through your word that you change hearts miraculously. You do what we can't do, what nobody in the world can do, is to take dead hearts, bring them to life. You can take rebellious hearts, turn them toward you. You can take even hearts that are weak in their faith and grow that faith to be strong in ways that we can't plan out and we can't map out. But when we're faithful, we know that you're faithful. And so, Father, help us to be bold, help us to be clear, Help us be plain in our speech to one another and to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.